Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Last night in Texas, Trump declared himself a nationalist with all the baggage that that label implies. That phrase, along with things like America First, almost instantly brings us back to another time and another place. The America not of 2018, but of 1940 and 1941, as Hitler's tentacles reached through Europe and as America contemplated entry into the war. Even though we fantasize about it now as a gentler time, as a more united time in the run-up to America's entry into the war, the country was profoundly divided. Hitler had friends in America, and they were people in high places who presented a powerful strain of American isolationism, anti-Semitism, and racism. Indeed, history does repeat itself. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Bradley Hart. Bradley Hart is a professor at Cal State University, Fresno. He's a former fellow at Churchill College in Cambridge. And he's the author of the new book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States. Bradley Hart, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to try and put this in context. And we have this this kind of fantasy that uh, in the run-up to America's involvement in the Second World War, that we had a country that was very much united behind the idea of entering into the war and taking on Hitler. In fact, uh, the truth is far different than that. Talk a little bit about that broader context first. Well, that's absolutely right. We do want to tell ourselves this sort of convenient story about how the country was just sort of waiting to get into the war, that maybe we couldn't quite get in or maybe the timing wasn't right, but that we were always going to get in there on the side of the Allies and help the British and the French uh, save themselves or liberate themselves from the Germans and help win the war. The truth is quite the opposite. As I point out in the book, there was a huge lobby in this country for not only staying out of the war on some hand, that involved millions of, of Americans who believed that, uh, but there was also this a very large pro-German lobby in this country as well, people who actually wanted to take us into an alliance with Nazi Germany. And there were a lot of reasons why people held these views, some of which we can look back and say that they were sort of understandable, and we can talk about those in a minute. But I think a lot of these views are really appalling to us today and should be. But we need to realize that the country was not nearly as united as we want to think, and we, we really shouldn't be telling ourselves these sort of convenient or... Um, self-serving legends. One of the interesting things, as you say, is that there were a lot of reasons that different groups didn't want to get into the war. They were, they were Hitler sympathizers. There was anti-Semitism. They were simply corporate America that had a lot of business interests in Germany that, that didn't want to see us enter into the war. Talk about the common threads that existed at the time and the way in which so many of these disparate groups at the time kind of found common ground in this idea of not wanting to enter the war. The biggest common thread was anti-Semitism. And this is one thing that we, again, have sort of written out of the history books. But in this period, up until 1945, and in some ways even afterwards, there was a deep strain of anti-Semitism in this country. And this was not just casual anti-Semitism, excluding Jews from golf clubs or from certain neighborhoods or things like that, which was, of course, appalling and on its own. But this was very serious and often violent anti-Semitism in which Jews would be attacked on the streets of major cities. That certainly happened in 1940, 41. Um, and, you know, some of the polling data that I cite in the book indicates that about a third of the country actually wanted to get rid of the Jews in some way. Now, not through extermination camps necessarily, but certainly deporting them at a minimum, restricting the number of Jews coming into the country from Europe, which had some really tragic consequences in this period. But anti-Semitism was really the thread that held this together. 
And we see this very dramatically uniting the pro-German groups you mentioned a moment ago with the isolationists and the anti-interventionists. So one of the key moments for that comes on September 11th, 1941, a date that, of course, will become very famous later. But in 1941, this is the day when Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, steps onto a stage in Des Moines, Iowa, under the auspices of the America First Committee, and blames Europe's Jews for the outbreak of the war. So this is this bizarre moment where Lindbergh really exposes his anti-Semitic credentials. But I think the one thread that really does unite all of these groups is, is at least implicit anti-Semitism, if not explicit anti-Semitism. Talk about the isolationists and, and their attitudes about this, whether they were really committed as isolationists or whether they too were caught up in this anti-Semitism. Well, I think it's both. You know, isolationism is a really fascinating phenomenon in American history, and we're only now in the past couple of years, I think, reopening that discussion because we've certainly had some national political figures who have started bringing up isolationist ideas, even though they have not yet embraced that label. Although I think given last night's speech in, uh, in Houston, we may see the president possibly embracing that one along with the term nationalist. That'll be very interesting to see. Um, but you know, I, I think the isolationists come at this from a variety of angles. There are the foreign policy isolationists who are simply skeptical that getting involved in the war, or really any war for that matter, overseas, is an American interest. And this goes back to the to the earliest days of the Republic. When you see people like George Washington warning about entangling alliances and getting involved in these complicated European wars that Americans should really be staying away from. But there's a, a deeper strain of isolationism that we see coming out in the late 30s up until Pearl Harbor, which is really economic isolationism. And, and this is the part that we've sort of forgotten, this idea that the United States should turn all of its industries inward, erect these huge tariff walls around the country, build up heavy industry in an effort to be self-sufficient from the rest of the world. The one exception to that in this period would have been for Latin America. So the isolationists in this time believe very heavily in the Monroe Doctrine that states that Latin America is the Americans, it is the United States domain. There's sort of a, a manifest destiny undertone here going on. Um, but that certainly Europe and Asia, these are just places that are too complicated, they're far away, they're frightening. Americans shouldn't be involved in this stuff, and therefore the country needs to be facing inward. And yet there were companies, corporations, with significant interests overseas in Europe and in Germany. Indeed so, yeah. This was one of the more fascinating things I discovered in researching this book. And, and I should say I'm not the first historian to discover this. There's been a little bit of work done on this area, but I think I am first historian to sort of link this into the wider debates of the era. But the predominant examples I talk about are in the automotive industry. And there's a very good reason for that. Germany was a huge growth market for both General Motors and Ford, because after World War One, the only real auto manufacturers were companies like Mercedes. So these are very expensive vehicles. They're not the Model T Ford that everyone can afford. And so both GM and Ford sort of jump into the German market with both feet, so to speak. General Motors buys Opel, which becomes one of its subsidiaries. It is still, of course, a major automotive maker today. Ford opens a plant in the German city of Cologne. And so both of these companies are, are raking in huge profits in the Third Reich because, as many people know, Hitler invests very heavily in infrastructure, including the Autobahn freeway system, uh, but there are no cars on it. And so the auto manufacturers have this huge opportunity to literally fill Germany's roads. And they do. Now, the difficult thing about this is that the Germans, by 1937-38, realized the military potential of these manufacturing facilities as well. And so Opel and Ford become the largest manufacturers of trucks for the German military and quite literally give the Germans the vehicles they need to occupy Europe. And so we have this really sort of, in some ways, amoral sort of business activity going on. These companies, and I cite quite a lot of evidence in the book for this, but they just really don't care about what's going on. 
as long as the profits continue to pile up, they're perfectly happy to be giving the Germans trucks to occupy Czechoslovakia and later on France. And they're not the only companies we should say. I mean, Coca-Cola also goes into Germany. One of the sort of the most ironic things that I talk about in the book is that Coca-Cola was so successful in Germany that there's an account of German POWs arriving in the east coast of the U.S. late in the war. And they see signs for Coca-Cola and are amazed because they assume that Coca-Cola is a German company. And so they're sort of shocked to see this brand on American soil. And of course, a concurrent with the auto manufacturers, Standard Oil had a big presence there as well. Indeed so, yeah. So Standard Oil's um, ESSO subsidiary, ESSO, sort of brand that still exists to the current day, um, does huge business in Germany. And actually, Standard Oil itself has a patent-sharing arrangement with IG Farben, which is the big sort of German chemical company, very tragically gets, well, not tragically, but in sort of evil sense, gets deeply involved in the Holocaust later on. They actually manufacture a lot of the chemicals that are used in the gas chambers. So Standard Oil and, and IG Farben are doing just fantastic business together. And, and Standard actually has the largest stake in the German market through that patent sharing arrangement. But yeah, these companies really show no reluctance in getting involved. And even after it becomes very clear that the Germans um, well, what the nature of the Nazi regime is, let's say, that it's deeply anti-Semitic, violent, has this propensity towards warfare, they don't withdraw. And one, one I think, aspect of that is, is put yourself in their shoes for a moment, right? If you're the president or vice president of a publicly traded company like General Motors, can you really just withdraw from this market? It becomes a very difficult sell to your shareholders if you do. How did all of this play on the political class at the time? How did Roosevelt deal with it? How did others deal with it? Yeah, so Roosevelt is deeply concerned about this. And actually, there's some interesting evidence I found during the research about Roosevelt being really concerned about these business interests, especially. And at one point, they actually talk about forbidding American companies from opening any factories overseas at all, which is just remarkable when you think about what that would have meant for sort of the post-war world. Suddenly, we had just said, nope, no more American factories overseas. But they're really worried about uh, the potential for these uh, factories to be used for military purposes, which they're absolutely right about. But what's also interesting, and, and I point this out in the book very extensively, is that the political class in many ways becomes subverted by the Germans in this period. And so there are isolationist members of Congress who are actually taking cues and actually, in some cases, money from the German embassy to, to say certain things. The 1940 election becomes an absolute um, kind of catastrophe in some ways. Roosevelt ends up winning. But the Germans have put or tried to put millions of dollars into the race. They've actually tried to find any candidate who can defeat Roosevelt during this unprecedented third term. And so this is something else that just doesn't appear in the history textbooks. This was a moment at which the United States may have gone in a, in a radically different direction. And in some senses, it actually did. This is the only election in history where you have a president who wins a third term. Really unthinkable today in some ways. But had Roosevelt not done that, had he not run for that third term, who knows who the next president would have been? And I think this is part of the reason why Roosevelt does make that controversial decision to run for the term, because I think he actually knows that this stuff is going on and that he's the only man who can stop it. You mentioned Lindbergh before, and, and certainly he was a very loud voice within the, the America First movement. What other leaders, political leaders, existed that really gave voice to, to all of these different strains that we've been talking about? Yeah, there's a number of congressmen and senators who become the national voices of this. And what's interesting is that most of them come from rural states. So one of them, Burton K. Wheeler, U.S. Senator from Montana. Another one, Gerald P. Nye, a U.S. Senator from North Dakota. Um, you have a number of congressmen. Those, those are sort of the big-name senators. There's a few other people associated as well. But what's interesting is that all of these individuals are kind of outliers. 
So Burton K. Wheeler is an anti-Roosevelt Democrat. Um, and so he's basically ostracized from the mainstream of the party. Um, and then you have so, some other figures who are, who are basically these sort of, I guess, iconoclastic political figures in some ways. And their isolationism is one of the key ways that they become iconoclastic. They, they stand up and they say, I'm opposing my own president because I believe this is unconstitutional or I believe that this is just the wrong thing to do. And this, of course, has major political consequences for them. It means that they are cut out of the mainstream of the party. And in fact, in part because of their isolationism, but also because of a major political scandal involving the German embassy, almost all of these guys lose re-election, either through the primary process or through the general election uh, by the end of the war. And so they really get wiped out by their, by their political stances in this, in this period, and for very good reason. Again, these are people who have basically said that the U.S. can't win the war. They've been arguably defeatist. They have aligned themselves with German interests pretty explicitly. And again, there's a major political scandal that comes out of that. Um, but these are big figures. I mean, this would be the equivalent of a number of prominent senators coming out today and, and disagreeing with the mainstream of foreign policy in the country and in the midst of a huge war going on elsewhere. And so these are really controversial stances to take. How did these stances hold up after Pearl Harbor? Well, they don't. Um, effectively, when, when Pearl Harbor happens, the isolationists are shown to be completely wrong. I mean, remember the, the underlying premise of isolationism in this period is that the U.S. does not need to worry about this war because it's so far away. And Lindbergh's idea and, and the idea of a lot of isolationists, I guess, quote unquote, intellectuals, I mean, Lindbergh's no intellectual, but he's articulating these views, let's say, um, is that the U.S. should build a impenetrable ring of air bases and naval bases around its perimeter and basically just sit back behind this huge wall and wait out the war and then conquer the conqueror, um, because inevitably the U.S.'s military power will be so much greater than countries that just fought each other in huge wars. And so he has this sort of bizarre idea that we can just build a huge wall, sit behind it, and wait everyone else out. When Pearl Harbor happens, this is shown to be absolute fallacy, because Pearl Harbor is, of course, a key part of that wall. It's the uh, most easterly naval base for the U.S. It's the headquarters of the Pacific Fleet. Uh, and so if the Japanese can get that close and bomb the actual center of the American fleet, then there's no way you can sit up behind this wall. And so isolationism, at least in that manifestation, is shown to be total fallacy. And what's interesting is that we've never really seen that view come back. You, we've really never seen since 1945, at least, major political figures saying, let's just build this impenetrable ring of, of naval and air bases and we'll just wait everything out effectively. I mean, almost everybody knows that's fallacy today. But, of course, the rhetoric about building a wall sounds frighteningly familiar. Indeed so, yeah. I mean, this is one thing that, you know, one interesting thing about this book is that I started researching this in 2014, 2015. And a lot of people I talked to at the time about this project sort of looked at it and said, why would anyone want to read this, right? Why would anyone want to look at this? Because it's so bizarre and so sort of anachronistic today. It's just, it's just not going to be relevant for a contemporary audience. And then when 2016 rolled around, that conversation changed very dramatically. So, yes, it is very interesting to see this idea of, of a wall being built again. I think that is, that is classic sort of isolationist rhetoric, this idea that the U.S. needs to defend itself primarily, if not exclusively, let everybody else fight it out outside the wall and just, just let everything take place out there and we'll just sit back and relax. There's also this strain, once again, that has evolved after you started writing this, of isolationism and racism and, and even some anti-Semitism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, again, isolationism is really part of the American DNA. It is really the default foreign policy and in some ways just national policy position of this country because we are a unique country in a lot of ways. We have these huge oceans on either side. 
We have allies to our north and south that have really never, I mean, Mexico at one point almost gets involved with the Germans in World War I. But we've never had to fight a war here. We've never had to fight a huge land war against people on our own continent. And so this makes us a unique country. And in many ways, there is this great temptation to say, we can just sit this out. We have these huge natural barriers. We have tons of natural resources that are virtually unmatched anywhere else. And therefore, we can, we can just be this exceptional country and sort of sit all this out. I think what we have to keep in mind, though, is that, number one, you know, a good defense is a good offense in some ways, right? And I think in the era of nuclear weapons and things, and even in 1941, you can't just expect that no one is going to attack you. Aircraft carriers have sort of made that uh, an impossibility or, or rendered it moot in some senses. Uh, but I think the, the other thing here is that the word of the United States does make a big difference. And I think the, the one real tragedy in researching this book was the effect that these people had on American foreign policy. I think, I mean, imagine a, a countervailing scenario in which someone like a Charles Lindbergh isn't really out there. The isolationists aren't as vocal as they are. All of these German spies and agents I talk about in the book, they're not successful in what they're doing. And Roosevelt in 1939 sends a communique to Hitler and says, look, if you don't get out of Poland in 24 hours, the U.S. is going to war. This would have been a huge move. I mean, this, this would have changed the course of 20th century history in a really dramatic way. And so the isolationists are really successful at tying the hands of the government. And I think that's, that's the biggest impact that Hitler's American friends had. They, they certainly made the war much worse than it would have otherwise been. And among those friends was also, and, and, and this is the other contemporary context, the religious right at the time, or what, what constituted something similar through somebody like Father Coughlin. Yeah, this is a really fascinating thing. And it's another thing that's been sort of written out of the history books. But Father Coughlin is this sort of Detroit-based priest. He's actually a Catholic priest, which makes him a great outlier in this era. And we should remember also there was a huge amount of anti-Catholic prejudice. The Ku Klux Klan itself is an anti-Catholic organization and was very powerful in the 1930s and 40s. Um, so, so Coughlin really goes on the radio in, in the mid-20s in, in an effort to drive down or sort of uh, deal with anti-Catholic prejudice in the area around his, his church. Uh, but very swiftly, after the Great Depression begins, he switches to a political message and begins denouncing, actually he supports Roosevelt initially, then begins denouncing him as not doing enough to alleviate the Great Depression. And over the course of the 1930s, adopts a very interventionist set of economic beliefs. So he believes the government should rapidly inflate the currency just to put more money in people's pockets, allow them to deal with their debt, and then hopefully create jobs. He wants to spend huge amounts of money on infrastructure, which is actually ripped directly from the Nazis' playbook in this period. Uh, and so it's very clear that he's sort of allying himself with, let's say, heterodox economic views at a minimum. But then he begins expressing sympathies for anti-Semitism as well. And these things actually sort of go hand in hand, because Coughlin comes to believe and comes to tell his followers that the only reason his ideas can't be implemented are because of the Jewish bankers. And so we see this tie-in to sort of classic anti-Semitic tropes here, where Coughlin begins saying this stuff, begins expressing these views, and then, of course, the natural next step is to say, well, look, the Nazis have dealt with this problem, and that's why they're so successful. So we get this sort of gradualized escalation. And what's really frightening about someone like Father Coughlin is that he has this huge audience. He, we believe, had the largest radio audience of anyone in history, 28 million people on a weekly basis in the United States, in a country that's about half the size of today. So this is far larger than you know any talk show host that we can think of who you know, was majorly popular in the 90s or something like that. Coughlin had a larger audience 45 years before. So, so this is really scary stuff. This is, this is a guy who has a nationwide reach, who, who at one point 
toys with the idea of running for president, actually does run a candidate for president. He himself is ineligible, we should mention, because he was actually Canadian, which a lot of people don't know. But uh, yeah, so, so we have this sort of nationwide movement involves millions of people. We have this radio talk show host who has incredible reach, far larger than anyone today or really ever since. And he's expressing these very pro-Nazi views. And what's interesting about this, too, is that the Germans are very aware of Coughlin. I cite some evidence in the book of Germans saying, basically, we, we support this guy. We hope that his, in, his influence increases, but we can't give him money, the Germans say, because that might actually put him in jeopardy. People find out that we're paying him, then that might reduce his influence. But there's a really funny anecdote in the book, actually, where I, I quote an American student who was studying in Germany right around the time of, that the Pope had died. So they were in the process of selecting a new Pope. And the student is sort of in a beer hall, and I think it's kind of implied that it had, had a few beers at this point, but gets to talking with a German at the same table who says, oh, I think the next Pope should be Father Caldwell. He's, he's a great guy. He's the kind of guy we Nazis can, can back. To what extent were the Germans and Hitler specifically aware of the support that he had in the U.S.? You know, he is aware of it. We, we certainly know he's aware because in 1936, the German-American boot, which is one of these huge groups, I mean, something over between 100,000 and 200,000 nationwide members, these guys march in the streets, give the Nazis salute. It's, it's pretty clear what they are. Um, they actually go to Germany and they meet with Hitler. And Hitler sort of brushes them off, actually. There's a sort of a grainy photo that always gets shown of this where, you know, Fritz Kuhn, the leader of the Bund, and some other folks are standing around, and Hitler has sort of his back semi to the camera. This is actually a really interesting piece of evidence because Hitler and the Nazis stage managed everything very effectively. And certainly if Hitler wanted to put out a, a strong message, he could have done one of these staged photo shoots with dozens of photos and publicity shots and all these things. The Nazis do this all the time, but he doesn't do that. And so he sort of meets with these guys, his back is semi to the camera. Fritz Kuhn takes this picture back to the U.S., prints it in his propaganda rag that he controls, and says, well, I'm the Fuhrer of America because I met with, with Hitler, effectively. This means nothing of the sort. Hitler takes these kinds of meetings all the time. So this tells us that Fritz Kuhn and the Boone are, are kind of on the outs with the Fuhrer, and certainly that's because they are seen even by the Nazis as kind of loose cannons. We don't know what these guys are going to do. They could lead to an international incident. We don't really want to, to engage with them too closely. So these types of overt groups are, that are kind of over the top, we know the Nazis are kind of skeptical of them. But we also know that the Nazis are very interested in their political power on Capitol Hill. And so they've actually installed an intelligence agent on Capitol Hill who's hoping to influence these isolationist congressmen and senators we were talking about earlier towards basically increasing their, their political clout. And they are very successful at that. So I think the, the interesting conclusion here is that the Nazis uh, very much realize the potential of their American friends to help their cause. And those friends do help the cause by keeping the U.S. out of the war for a much longer period, I would argue, than it would have otherwise. But they're also very afraid and very skeptical of outright Nazi movements having any success in this country. And there's some very interesting reasons they cite for that. And how did these groups transform after the war? Well, they essentially go underground. Um, one thing I talk about in the book is that for much of the 20th century, and perhaps, you know, it's hard to imagine, but perhaps even today, Americans live next to German, former German-American Bund members. They live next to people who may have well been German spies. They live next to people who uh, had, had been involved with all these groups. They live next to America Firsters. They didn't just disappear after the war. These people certainly lived out their full lives um, in sort of blissful obscurity, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, one thing I tried to find extensive evidence on was accounts from people who had been in these groups in the 1930s 
uh, sort of talking about them after the war, but I could find virtually nothing. So it's very clear that these groups, they all disband. America first goes away like two days after Pearl Harbor um, because it wants its members to be, appear to be patriotic war workers. But in fact, these individuals were still around. It could in fact still be around today. So I think we don't know. And the primary reason we don't know is because in the 1950s, of course, the focus becomes on communism. So we have the McCarthy era where you're hunting down people who have been members of these organizations decades in the past, but there's never a similar reckoning for people who had been involved with these pro-Nazi groups. And so the bottom line is we don't know what happened to these individuals, and we don't know how much what they had experienced and done in the 1930s may well have influenced the next generation. You know, I think it's very sort of troubling to see, of course, swastikas being carried in the streets of American cities again, as we saw in Charlottesville about a year ago. Um, but one wonders how many of those individuals were taught that. Were taught that by people who had done the same thing in the 1930s. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to try and imagine, and, and, and it was really a very specific period of time, the way in which all of this transformed into anti-communism in the 50s. It's pretty clear that it did, did transform, that one led to the other. Oh, absolutely. And, that, and that's another thread that does unite these groups, this heavy anti-communism. And what's interesting is that after the war, there is some evidence that some of these individuals become sort of well-known anti-communist voices because they can very rightly, in this case, truthfully say, I was never a communist. I've been fighting the Reds since 1933 type thing. The problem is they were also involved with these pro-Nazi groups. But there is, there is certainly evidence that this is the case. And, and this is one thing that I think is hard for us to remember now because we have a decreasing number of people who do remember that era firsthand. But the anti-communist paranoia in this country was immense. And the idea that any, the, the accusation of even having been a member of one of these um, sort of communist groups in the 30s destroyed people's careers. And so a lot of these anti-Nazi folks see the opportunity to, to convert over to that cause, and they do so quite successfully. Bradley Hart. His book is Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters of the United States. Bradley, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you.